All right, our text this morning is uh, Ecclesiastes. That's where we've been studying the, uh, the whole of summer. And uh, the particular chapter that we're in is uh, chapter 7. We're going to look at the second half of chapter 7. So I think in the Pew Bible you can find it somewhere around page 556 or 57. We talked last week at the beginning of chapter 7 about this, this parallelism. There's the compare-contrast. And he's talking about wisdom, and the writer's talking about folly. Better is this than that. It's better to finish a job uh, than to just start the job. Uh, it, it's better, uh, he talks about in the previous uh, verses, to be a patient person in spirit than a proud person in spirit. It's even better at times, if we really look at life through an honest uh, lens, it's actually better uh, to, to cry and to have sorrow than it is to have laughter at times. As strange as that is to sound to, as, to our, to our, as to our hearing, it's because we're actually closer to reality than trying sometimes in folly and laughter to escape reality. We even said last week, as strange as it is, that there's actually value to adversity. That God actually orchestrates things. Under God, we have, uh, we have hope that we can navigate that. Now, a good teacher, and that's exactly who Coelette is. He is a, uh, the, the author of this is a teacher. He's one who's assembled people to give instruction. And he's gifted in what he does because he's able to engage with uh, analogies and hyperbole and questions and hard questions. And even things that uh, we find very, very perplexing, but it then draws us in. Even poetry. That's how wisdom literature works in God's word. Those, those books of you know, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, Song of Solomon. What is wisdom? We talked about wisdom as a definition from uh, one of my Old Testament professors, Bruce Walkie, would say, wisdom is the skill to navigate life well. So in other words, we're, we're moving away from the Greek philosophy into the Hebrew way of thinking. The people of God, Israel, understood that wisdom isn't a cognitive, philosophical thing. True true wisdom is actually practical in its outworkings. It is to be applied to our lives. It actually benefits us and others if it is true wisdom. In previous weeks, uh, I have used that skill to navigate life well definition. I actually came across another one from Chuck Swindoll, who I think uh, captures it also very well. He's a, a, a well-respected Bible teacher. He says that wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. Okay, so it originates with God, but the outworkings of that are a rare objectivity with life and the ability to handle it with stability. Last week, he said in verse 12 of chapter 7 that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, we're going to see that he says something that sounds very much contradictory to that. So if you're listening here, you will, you will sense that there maybe is a hint of, of contradiction, and we'll try to dig in on that. You may, even be, able, you may even be saying to yourself as we read this portion, how is that in the Bible? Um, that's Okay. Uh, stand with me and, uh, and let's, let's show deference one more time to God's word, beginning in verse 15. Hear this. This is the word of God. In my vain life, I have seen everything. 
There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth that does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all... Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart it's, is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask right now, as we again come to this puzzling book and another puzzling passage, we definitely need your spirit to guide and inform us. And I pray that as a result of our time here briefly in your word, we might be humbled and Christ might be Exalted because we pray in his precious name. Amen. Many years ago, there was a senior executive at Standard Oil Company, and he made a decision and he made an error, and the error cost the oil company over $2 million. Now, that, that in modern day terms would have been a lot more money. The CEO of the company at the time, Standard Oil, was John D. Rockefeller. And he found out about this mistake, and it got its way out to the rest of the executives in the company. And uh, they immediately all went missing the next morning. No one wanted to come and face Rockefeller's wrath. And uh, and so they all kind of conveniently found a way to not be in the office, except for one gentleman, and his name was Bedford. Edward Bedford. He was a partner in the company. He was already scheduled to see Rockefeller that morning. He kept his appointment. He walked in and stood there, and Rockefeller's just... Uh, preoccupied and he stands there for a while and stands there for a while and stands there for a while and finally looks up and he says oh yes Bedford I didn't see you there come have a seat Bedford did you hear about our loss uh, yes he replies yeah I, I heard about uh, the money and the mistake he says yeah well what I'm doing is uh, right now I'm he stood there with his pen and pad and uh, he says what I'm doing is uh, I'm thinking things over and uh, I've, you know, I'm making some notes before I discuss the matter with the man who made the mistake. And in fact, what I've been doing is I'm just writing down all of this man's virtues. And he included in that a brief description of how the man had helped the company over time with a lot of right decisions to multiply the company's money and to, you know, to give an added uh, benefit 
that it was even more than the recent costly error. Bedford said, I'll never forget that lesson. In later years, when I was tempted to rip into someone, I forced myself first to sit down and thoughtfully compile a long list of good points as I possibly could. Invariably, invariably, by the time I finished my inventory, I would see the matter in its true perspective and keep my temper under control. There's no telling how many times this habit has prevented me from committing one of the costliest mistakes any executive can make, losing his or her temper. I commend it to anyone who must deal with people. We all have to deal with people. We all have to deal with people. And we need wisdom. Desperately, we need wisdom. Before we dig in, two things that I'm, I want to examine, but before we do, just for the sake of definition, I've already talked about a definition for wisdom, but what is the definition and understanding of righteousness? A righteousness, and by the way, the standard of righteousness, the only true source of righteousness is God himself. Only God is righteous, perfect, holy, set apart, flawless in all of his ways. He is the standard of righteousness. We ourselves cannot produce righteousness. We, of course, being made in the image of God, can discern and know uh, what is good and what is, is evil, but we always and inevitably fall short of the glory of God. Scripture is very clear. Maybe your experience uh, illustrates that. Certainly does mine. And it doesn't matter whether you imagine and perceive yourself to be just a little bit lacking in righteousness or a whole lot. The fact of the matter is that to fall short of God's standard and law and glory is that all of us are unrighteous. We are not at peace with a holy God in life and in birth. But we can have right standing before God. And yet Jesus, who is that avenue by which we have righteousness, the avenue by which we can be at peace with the holy God, he himself called us and said, be holy as I am holy, be righteous as our Father is righteous. So he's saying, walk in the obedience of God's word, not perfectly, not flawlessly, but consistently, because what? There is reward and hope for a long life. Oh, but it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Right? Because then we imagine that, we envision that, we long for that, we dream of it, and then boom, what happens? Let's go back to our text Chapter 7, verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in righteousness and the wicked man who prolongs his life in what? Evil doing. Don't pay attention to the order of service, the outline I have there. The outline's actually gonna be just these two observations that I see. There's stability here and there's humility. One is a product and the other is a posture. You see, stability is the product of wisdom and humility is the posture of wisdom. Those are the two headings that I want to cover. Stability, the product of wisdom. We all know the old adage. We, we, we commend it to our, 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 our kids sometimes. We talk about the boomerang effect. If you send something out good, you can hope that it'll come back around and you will experience and reap goodness. And then... The later in life cynical version of yourself says, no good deed goes 
unpunished. We always say with that cynical, no good deed goes unpunished. The nice guy, where does he finish? Last. We know there's a general rule, right? But real wisdom says, I understand and I'm not perplexed to the core by the exceptions of that. That's what Ecclesiastes is time and again. Here's the general rule, fine and well, but there are exceptions to that. What are we to do with navigating life? Life, he is saying here, is not fair. At least from our perspective, it's only God who governs our lifespan. Ultimately, we are not in control. And it doesn't matter uh, the, the, the wealth of spiritual you know, uh, goodness and moral perfection that we perceive of ourselves. Our deep spirituality and good morality doesn't make our life longer, inevitably, automatically. Remember Job, right? A righteous man. He's, he's lamenting the fact that his young family, all of this grief and all of this loss. In fact, Job's friends, they, they come to him and they say, now, Job, we know that the righteous don't suffer. So come on, man, what are you hiding? What, what's really going on, Job? Wisdom literature puts forward this perplexing reality and it just lets it linger. Instead of just trying to, to dispel it and not pay attention to it and ignore and, 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 and move on, it says, no, there's something to contemplate here. And, and we need balance and we, we need stability. And so Coalette, presumably the teacher here, Solomon, is, is commending to us to avoid two dangers, two extremes. So let's continue with our text, verse 16 and 17. Be not, as a response to that, well then, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So on the one side, we're tempted to just uh, walk the way of hedonism, which is to say, if goodness doesn't pay, if, you know, if there is no reward, then what's the point? If being good does not automatically make you live long, well, let's have fun, right? Let's have a party. I mean, let's just be a hellraiser. No, that leads to danger and destruction. The other extreme and danger he's warning against is legalism, which is to be so focused on wisdom and right living in that path that you isolate yourself into misery. So some would suggest that what he's saying in verse 16 is moderation in all things, right? Even with righteousness, it's okay to be a little naughty and a little bit nice. There you go. I can live with that, right? That, that works for me. I, I like that. But that's not what the text is saying. It's not commending moderation in, in righteousness. No, it's saying neither of those is right. Neither of those is accurate because both of them, and in the Hebrew, the, the, the verb is reflective. It's all self-seeking, self-serving. Because the hedonist, it's all about indulgence and self-gratification. And on the other hand, the legalist, it's all about self-importance and self-justification. The phrase in verse 16, be not overly righteous, is saying, don't be self-righteous. 
And then in verse 17, don't be overly wicked is speaking of unrighteousness. But neither of those is good. Neither of those is a reflection of wisdom for us to walk in. And we know, verse 16, don't be overly wise. You know, well, part of the reason that we know he's not commending a little bit of unrighteousness, because at the very close of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13, he says, this is the end of the matter, that we would obey God, that we would fear God and walk and keep in his commandments. And then verse 16 says, don't be overly wise, which isn't real wisdom. It's a, it's a pseudo wisdom that is all about acquiring knowledge that is just in the end self-serving, right? You know what I'm saying? There's a reason that Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So don't be overly wise in that regard, just knowledge for the sake of knowledge and self. The answer to this in the face of the uncertainties and the unfairness of life is not one of these extreme responses, but verse 18, when he says that we should fear God, which is to, to stand in awe and reverence of who he is and all of his control and authority and power and presence. It gives us more balance. If we come to that place of surrender, verse 19 says that we would have stability and strength as well. And that is more valuable than even 10 rulers or, or you know, 10 people with great power. Wisdom does not provide all of the answers. But it does give strength. It gives the answers to what we need to know. And I always joke about this. You've heard me say it before. The three governing principles uh, that help me in life. To remember. What do I need to remember? I only need to remember three things. God is God. I am not. And sin confuses the first two. God is God. I am not. And sin definitely confuses the first two. To stand in reverence of, it's to say wisdom is not knowing, it's knowing that I'm not supposed to know, and I'm okay with that. To say, I, I won't know, I can't know, and I'm okay with that. In fact, it's by design that I don't know. Because if I did, I would be God. And us playing God has not worked out so well. In fact, it's led to our destruction. But here we're encouraged not only to have a wise and balanced outlook, avoiding the extremes, we're also commended a particular posture. So here's my second heading. Humility, which is the posture of wisdom. The reality, and it's a humbling one in verse 20, is there is no one, not a single person, who can say they have no sin and is righteous. No one. Isaiah 53, it's the echo of that. The prophet writes, there is all, all, all of we like sheep, have gone astray, we have all turned everyone to his own way. But here's the good news, and I want to get to it earlier, right? There is a Messiah, there is an anointed Christ who comes, and Isaiah says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the failures, the sin of us. That's good news. Our plight, our, you know, our, our, our condition but then the, the cure. If you are sent, no, let me don't put it that way. 
if, not if, but when we are self-centered and self-referenced in our motivations, they will inevitably surface, right? You can have good behavior and you can have what looks like a righteous life on the outside, but there are times and seasons when that will be inevitably revealed for what it truly is. If we are selfish. Here's two areas where our responses show where our heart is. One is suffering and the other is criticism. And that's what he's talking about here. It is perplexing. It is troubling when we see that bad, bad things happen to good people. Namely ourselves. When we say, I don't deserve this. I, I deserve better. You deserve happiness. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with where that is in Scripture. But I, I find myself saying it to myself when I'm disgruntled and angry and, and impatient, maybe. Or moreover, assuming that we are undeserving of bad things to happen. That we do deserve things and we don't deserve things. That's all pride. Phil Riken says, points this out. One, it's one small step away from saying, God Who do you think you are? When the circumstances of life are sour and we raise our fist at God, not our hand, it's okay. The psalmist does it, inspired of God, asking why and how. But ultimately, raising our fist at God is not the way. The other area that some of our self-centered, self-referenced way shows up is how we respond to criticism. Now, what he provides here is a bit of an illustration of the workplace, right? And, uh, and there's nothing new here, right? It, as long as people have been in management, there's always been laborers, and the laborers have always been critical of the management. Probably vice versa. So what does he say? Let's read it again. Verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So whether, by the way, the criticism is unjust, undeserved, or it's legitimate and just, it's still painful. I have some criticisms. Anyone want to line up and I'll tell you what they are? No, we would rather not. It's painful. And he's talking about the sins of the tongue. Gossip. Cursing. Grumbling. It's painful, but it's also lethal. It's very common. That's the reason that we hear in James how it's like fire. It's the, the taming of the tongue is a difficult thing, an impossible thing without the help of God. We've all failed in that regard. As one commentator puts it so well, individuals acutely and humbly aware of their own sinfulness will readily be able to shrug off the foolish and unkind remarks of others. So let me ask you, how do you handle, how do you navigate suffering and criticism? What would other people say and of how you handle suffering and criticism? Have mercy. Lord, give us wisdom. But then there's this continuation of observing the... The flawed state of humanity. Let's look again at the text, verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart it snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. 
He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Elsewhere in Scripture, particularly Solomon in Proverbs, we see him. He's writing a letter to his son and he is warning him. And he takes and compares wisdom and folly and he makes them, as would be fitting to a young man, a personification, a female personification of that. So there's, wis- there's woman wisdom and with her is, is delight and life and fruit. And then there is woman folly, who is a seductress and adulterous woman who leads you away and is, is foolishness and pain and, and misery and destruction. And here he's saying this woman is the, is the personification of pure evil and how she leads to sorrow and enslavement. Solomon, of all people, has gotten a front row seat to this because he had every access to women he wanted. And in fact, he sought out tons of sensual pleasure with a thousand wives. And it did not satisfy him. It did not fulfill his longings. Sadly, he chose foreign wives. Instead of finding a wife that loved God and loved Yahweh and walked in his ways, he found foreign wives who I'm sure by all appearances on the surface were quite lovely and beautiful. But 1 Kings 8, if you go and read it, you see that it led his heart away from God. And that was a tragedy. So now he's putting it in the form of a hyperbole in verse 28 when he says, listen, I can only find one in a thousand you know, men and zero women. Now, there's been lots of debate and commentary and discourse about what are the possible interpretations of this passage. It almost sounds at first plain reading to be rather sexist. Well, it's not a compliment to say one in a thousand men. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's just as bad. It's like you go ahead, you find a needle in a haystack. Not going to happen. It's one of those moments and times whenever we come across something in God's word that we apply the general, the the very first principle of interpretation, which is scripture interprets scripture. So if we have a less clear passage of scripture, we seek to interpret those with a clearer passage of scripture. And in the New Testament, if we have uh, the, the new revelation of that, then we can help interpret and understand the Old Testament. And we see clearly in the New Testament, particularly with our Lord Jesus, that every interaction uh, that he has with women is rather positive and commending. And he is one who is honoring women, not so much men. Coalette Solomon here is writing to an original audience of men. And he's saying, watch out for the allure of sexual temptation. Do not linger there. Don't see how close you can get to it. He's saying to flee. To be alert, to be aware. Really, I think that he's ultimately saying, whether he's referring to to that woman when he says he couldn't find one, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising amongst all the foreign wives to find one who genuinely surrendered to God. I think this is just a universal statement. The best takeaway, regardless male or female, is to say that there's this universal problem that humanity has, and it's called depravity. It's, It's echoing verse 20 that there's no one No human being who is righteous and without sin. A truly humble, wise person is so rare. I know it sounds like, you know, when we say we're depraved, which is true, the Bible testifies to this. And talk about a doctrine that brings a lot of like, 
clarity when you look at the world. Like, it explains so much that we, in all of our faculties, our, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our actions, our motivations, all of our faculties are tainted with sin. It doesn't mean we're utterly depraved, right? I mean, even Hitler didn't kill his mother, right? So, I mean, but, but all of our faculties are impacted by sin and selfishness and foolishness, ultimately. It's, it's, I know it sounds like pessimism, but I think it's a, a necessary and biblical thing. The schemes of the human heart are not fixed by human education nor human determination. We have tried to be good. How's that working? Well, he's saying don't despair and just, you know, go into folly. He's saying walk, continue with your eyes fixed on God. One of the vows that we take for those of you who are members of our church, one of the vows that we take, in fact, it's the very first acknowledgement that we say. The first thing that we acknowledge is that we acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. We're without hope. Without God and his mercy and grace, we are without hope. Now, at the beginning, going back to verse 15, Solomon is drawing from his experience in his vein, which means his, his brief life, that he's seen everything. And so he's drawing from that to, to come to these conclusions. But here in verse 29, at the close, he's drawing us back to Scripture and his knowledge of God's word in Genesis at the time of creation. Verse 29. Let me read it again for us. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In other words, there was an original state of righteousness that we as humanity enjoyed, and our parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, were made at peace with God and righteous. But they chose, they chose to disregard God's law. They were deceived by sin and their own devices and schemes. And now that just continues out. And we live under the curse of that. We're born that way. It's hot and I've got a lot of bad news. Okay, I hear you. Okay. Let me wrap this up. The problem, in essence, I'm trying to communicate is not out there. Verse 29 is, is saying, it's not God's fault. It is, is our willful, the heart, the heart is the problem. It's not out there. It's not critical people and mean-spirited folks or seductive people or sour circumstances. The problem is in here. The prophet Jeremiah 17, he writes, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? By the way, in remedy and, and in hope and all of this, I want to remind us that God is not grading on the curve. He's not sitting in his office as a CEO ready to, 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 to strike you and, and I down with our error and our, our mistakes and our sin. But neither is he sitting in his office like John D. Rockefeller writing out, which is a smart exercise with, with relationships uh, to people that we're upset with, maybe. But God's not up there writing out, oh, here's all the good things they've done. And here's all the bad things. I just hope the good things can outweigh the bad things. 
We'll keep, we'll, we'll keep Troy on. He's, he's, been a, he's been a good boy. Until it's time to put the kids to bed. And then it, it all, it, yeah, well, let's just keep moving here. Let me, let me put you, let me, let me put this before you as we close. Romans 3 says that all, Paul inspired of God says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then there's good news attached to it in verse 24. And yet we are justified by Christ's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, that there is a second Adam. There was another who came into our plight and our struggle and our broken, cursed world, a truly righteous man, the only true, perfect, righteous one to live. That is Jesus. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, come to him today. Repent, turn from your sin, trust him, believe upon him that the blood of Christ on the cross might cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's, it's unbelievable that I and you in Christ can be righteous. We're grappling here, right? In Ecclesiastes, we're grappling with the iniquities of, of, of life, the depravity of humanity, the inevitability of death, and the fact that our hope is not inward or outward, but upward. Whether we die young or whether we die old, if we are united to him, if we die in Christ, we die well. Pray with me. Father, help us to take these things to heart. That by faith we might contemplate and meditate on the wisdom, on, on your wisdom, on your heart, on your love, on your promises. Even in the face of adversity and trials, mysteries, disparities. Lord, we do not have all the answers and sometimes we're very uncomfortable. I pray that you would grant us faith to walk in mysteries. Lord, I thank you for the kindness that you have shown to us. The mercy, the gifts. Lord, I thank you for the gift of babies born many to our church. And we pray for the unborn children in our church, in our country. Lord, we pray that you would encourage and guide those who seek to shepherd their children and, and even foster and care for others. Lord, we know that you're a God of comfort and we pray that you would meet uh, the rivers this week as they grieve and in the weeks ahead, the loss of Mark's father. Would you comfort and guide their family this week? Lord, be merciful, we pray, to those who travel. Lord, I pray you'd bless other churches in our area that herald the good news of the gospel. I pray especially this morning for uh, our missionaries, Colin and Zuri, as they serve in West Africa, as they seek to reach students on the campus and people from various countries pointing them to Christ. Lord, I pray that they would draw near to you and that you would provide them the opportunity, the blessing of being parents as they long to be. Thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, grow us in faithfulness, even now as we turn our attention to uh, the table.
the sacrament that you've prepared for your children. We pray through Christ, even now as he together taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father.